I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. When I finally reached the end of the gorge, I heard Lynx howling with pain and shock. I walked around a pile of logs that had been blocking my view, and there was Lynx sitting wailing. Red saliva was dripping from his mouth. I bent over him and stroked him. Trembling and whining, he pressed close to me. He must have bitten his tongue or chipped a tooth. When I encouraged him to go on with me, he put his tail between his legs, stood in front of me and pushed me back with his body. I couldn't see what he was so frightened of. At this point, the road emerged from the gorge, and as far as I could see, it lay deserted and peaceful in the morning sun. I reluctantly pushed the dog aside and went ahead on my own. Fortunately, thanks to Lynx's obstruction, I had slowed down. For a few paces on, I gave my head a violent bump and stumbled backwards. Lynx immediately started whining again and pressed himself against my legs. Baffled, I stretched out my hand and touched something smooth and cool. A smooth, cool resistance where there could be nothing but air. I tentatively tried again, and once more my hand rested on something like a window pane. Then I heard a loud knocking sound and glanced around before realizing that it was my own heartbeat thundering in my ears. My heart had been frightened before I knew anything about it. That was a passage from an early section of The Wall by Marlene Haushofer, which was originally published in German in 1963. The translation is by Sean Whiteside and is published by Quartet Books. Our protagonist and narrator is a woman in her 40s who, while visiting friends at a hunting lodge in rural Austria, finds herself divorced from all human contact when an invisible wall descends, cutting her small region off from the rest of the world. She is quickly forced into a struggle to survive and must learn to become self-sufficient Often interpreted as an allegory of female emancipation, this Robinsonade places questions of identity and society at its core by describing a world in which their very existence is questionable. Join us over the next hour while we give our thoughts and impressions of this singular and profoundly absorbing novel. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 17 of Sherd's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prouse. How are you doing, man? Oh, yeah, very good. Thank you, Sam. Glad to hear it, buddy. So we're talking about Marlene Haushofer's The Wall today, which was published in 1963 in German. How did you feel about reading this one, Rob? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I, I really, really enjoyed it. I sort of, from the moment we 
started reading it. And I think I might have started reading it the day we finished the previous episode. I really couldn't put it down. For, for anyone that's read it, they'll be able to know. But, that, you know, there's not an enormous amount that happens. It's not a, a thriller. <laughs> uh, but I just, I found it so compelling. I really, really enjoyed reading it a lot. What, what about you? This is my second time round reading, reading this book. I, I read it quite a while ago now, maybe six or seven years ago. And I actually read it in the original German at a time when I was reading a lot more in that language and perhaps a, a lot better at doing that than I am these days. But I remember being really impressed by it at the time. I was impressed by its the, the, the strangeness of its central premise, but maybe more than that by its matter-of-factness, its kind of unadorned quality and this focus on labour and survival almost above the existential questions that are raised by the narrator's predicament. It's one that I knew I wanted to come back to, so it's really nice to read it again. But I think I actually had a very different impression this time round reading it in English. I was kind of struck by different things and and focused perhaps more on, on those aspects of the book that do pay more attention to the kind of existential questions raised by uh, her circumstances. It's true for sure that the bulk of the book is concerned with everyday tasks that the narrator has to accomplish in order to keep on living. But I think like Robinson Crusoe, to which is often compared, there there is a lot of meditation and contemplation of the of the predicament. A lot more than I remember. A lot of emphasis on loneliness and isolation and fear. It's it's a much more contemplative book than I, I remembered a lot more emotional and how you feel about it Rob uh, reading it for the first time is there one does one side of it stand taller than another the sparseness of the narrative and the language as well and yet certainly the kind of like very matter-of-factness gives kind of certain peaceful quality to the book there's things I've read I think I'm trying to think what I could compare it to but there's something very interesting about suddenly finding yourself in this kind of a situation where survival is is suddenly your day-to-day life the all-absorbing task and sometimes narratives like this I think can get bogged down in the detail of quite how this might be possible and this never does that you don't think so I mean it is the almost the entirety of the narrative but I never feel like it gets heavy with it there's for me anyway there is a a certain lightness where it was it was obvious you know how like uh it's kind of life and death and at points obviously <laughs> perhaps closer to death than life it never seemed overdone i never lost interest by falling into like a kind of morass of technical detail or anything like that which i could sort of imagine happening like the description never goes too far the details of quite how she makes her life in this forest never quite overtake the narrative completely in that the the book keeps moving forward somehow. You know, we we jump from season to season or we we kind of like move through these events relatively quickly. I don't know, but was that not, was that perhaps not how you felt? That is quite close to how I felt, but I can imagine that someone who's who might not be quite as well disposed towards the book as you and I might be could say that this is essentially a catalogue of deeds, uh, <laughs> you know, a catalogue of tasks that she needs to 
accomplished in order to survive and not very much more than that if you were being very critical but i think i almost feel like uh, there's something in there there's a there's a level of care perhaps this is probably quite a, a weird comparison to make but along with fiction i really enjoy reading cookbooks like i quite often sit down and just will read read a cookbook and i think you can really tell with something like that which of course is you know at it's very base level, a kind of instructional manual, how to do something very specific. But when there's an element of care in the recipe or the kind of style of cooking or whatever, you can really tell and it's and it suddenly becomes something that's you know, you can read from page to page even if you're not looking for something specific. And I almost sort of felt the same thing here that there's a real care in what she's doing, you know, and there's obvious care in the the animals that she has to look after that stops it being overly technical, perhaps. And yeah, stops, for me anyway, it being purely that that kind of just, as you say, a a kind of catalogue of the day-to-day activities. Did it feel like an emotional book to you? it really did to me this time round. Yeah, 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 definitely. And I think there's, you know, we'll obviously discuss it at length later, but there's there's so much in it. There's, uh, I think, like a real emotional conflict in a way that it's not quite as simple as someone who's just found themselves trapped in a situation. It's far richer, I think, and more nuanced and perhaps closer to how it might really genuinely be to to kind of find yourself in this situation, for there suddenly to be this break between your past and your present and how you would feel about that, I think is, um, it's really, really emotional reading that and and seeing someone attempt to come to terms with that. So yeah, yeah, I would would absolutely agree. Yeah, I, I mean, I was much more struck this time by the periods of depression and illness that she undergoes there are moments where she suffers from an inability to work and those relationships she she forms with with the animals and the toll that that takes on her were, were very affecting especially the way in which she almost forces herself to develop a kind of resistance to emotional connections and perhaps never quite yeah. succeeds. I think is it Pearl, the name of the the first cat that dies. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, in in that windstorm, and she makes a, a conscious decision not to place too much emotional weight on on companionship, and that seemed very central to the book. The the absence of companionship. And I and I also feel like potentially stylistically in that we're we're kind of reading a journal after the fact, sort of like after two years has passed, so much is present in its absence that very deliberately perhaps the narrator, you know, she is leaving stuff out because the need to survive kind of trumps this desire to build these emotional attachments that perhaps she realizes actually could be quite dangerous or could lead her in kind of like a, a way of thinking which could perhaps even imperil her life or, or those of the animals that she cares for. I think that's that's really evident in, in how she actually terms this document that she's creating. In German she uses the word Bericht, ein Bericht which just means a report, which is quite an em- emotionless or cold term. Actually thinking about it now reminds me of that slightly paradoxical term as it's used in the Max Frisch novel uh, Homo Faber the subtitle to that to that book is Ein Bericht and it's about a very coldly intellectual engineer becoming extremely emotional um, through a, a series of fateful a- accidents and we almost see the the opposite 
thing going on here, right? That uh, yeah. she's trying to suspend suspend her emotions as much as possible. The tone straddles that kind of matter-of-factness and something of a more emotional nature. I mean, she talks about it quite specifically, I think. you, you Before we started recording, I think yesterday or the day before, you asked me, why is she writing it? Why is she doing this? And there's a, there's a, a passage that kind of gets to the heart of that, I think. She says, Sometimes I try to treat myself like a robot. Do this and go there and don't forget to do that. But it works only for a short time. I'm a bad robot. I'm still a human being who thinks and feels, and I shall not be able to shake either habit. That's why I'm sitting here writing down everything that's happened. I'm not worried about whether the mice will eat my notebooks or not. Writing is all that matters. And as there are no other conversations left, I have to keep the endless conversation with myself alive. It will be the only report that I shall ever write, for when it is written, there won't be a single little piece of paper left to write on in the house. Even now, the moment when I shall have to go to bed makes me tremble. Then I shall lie with my eyes open until the cat comes home, and her warm proximity will give me the sleep I long for. Even then I'm not safe. If I'm defenceless, dreams can assail me. Black dreams of night. So I was very conscious there of a kind of brittleness in the narrative voice uh, a vulnerability that's very present there despite the undeniable strength that she develops as sort of both physically and, and mentally there's always this underlying melancholy what you mentioned the fact that this report is is being written two years into her current circumstances and that she's been through an awful lot to which maybe initially we're not we're not privy explains some of that but there is a clash there between the emotional and the, the factual, I think. I don't know. Do you think reading it, you get the sense that she's writing purely for herself? Or do you think there is a, a kind of desire for, if not an audience, at least one other person, that in writing there's still the possibility of there being someone else, some person to connect to? that can, at a kind of um, human level, which obviously she has this very kind of deep connections with the animals, but very much within the text she writes about how there is this break between them because, you know, there's, I guess, yeah, like a, a different level of consciousness or a, a different way of interacting with the environment, something that actually she seems quite jealous of at points. Do you think perhaps there's, it's a kind of way of keeping alive this idea that there might be at least one person out there still. Yeah, I, th I think so. I think it's sort of implicit in the fact that there's more writing than appears in this in, in this document. She tells us that she's she's been keeping something closer to a, a diary that before embarking upon this this report, she has notebooks with just her daily deeds, right? That she's using as a sort of that that, that now she's using as reference for the, for this endeavor. There must be some consciousness of the possibility of a reader, despite what she says. Yeah, I think I think you're right. The fact that she says, you know, writing is all that matters, suggests perhaps that it, it is about maintaining her sanity to a degree. Um, and if sanity can only come by imagining that there, there may be someone one day who will read this document, maybe that's precisely what it is. Mm -hmm. 
So I'll, I'll say something about Marlene Haushofer's life. Actually, that I had a wealth of information as I, I got Daniela Striegel's biography of Marlene Haushofer and there's also this wonderfully detailed website, marlenehaushofer.ch. And yeah, there was so much information that I really had to sift through and take out a few interesting points. If a listener does want to, to find out more, I'd really recommend that that website marlenehaushofer.ch it is a it's a german language website i don't think there is a great deal available in english sadly marlene haushofer was born in 1920 in the village of frauenstein in austria and in fact her, her name by birth was not haushofer but frauendorfer anyone that knows a, li- a little german will will recognize in that word frau something perhaps quite quite fateful perhaps um <laughs> the biographer daniela striegel makes reference to what she calls a a fateful irony she calls haushofer die dichterin der weiblichen entfremdung or the the poet of female alienation and she thought it was ironic that she was born in a place called Frauenstein with the name Frauendorfer. Interestingly for us, I think her, her father had a post in Haushofer's childhood as a forest warden or ranger or, or woodsman in, in a rural area of uh, of Austria. You can imagine this very rural upbringing and and in fact there are pictures on that website I mentioned of of the of a, a kind of hunting lodge where she spent quite a lot of time as a child and it's it's speculated that that's the that that's the inspiration for Hugo's hut in in the wall. Were you were you struck Rob by perhaps what seemed to be a real familiarity with with this kind of life in in her writing yeah definitely although yeah there is this real as i said i don't know like for me the best way of saying it is this real care for what she's writing about it's certainly not or i don't think it is sort of too lyrical it is very very practical and it really strikes me as a writing of someone who has spent time here but also is very kind of in tune with the the way of life that people must have had for for kind of centuries living in these regions at times it reminded me slightly of the nan shepherd living mountain i mean that is at points very lyrical but there was also at base a kind of and a kind of appreciation or a knowledge that i think only comes with actually spending a lot of time and, and really living in a place and that's really what i felt with this and i think there's a again with this care like a certain dedication to getting things right so although i think it never becomes overly technical it's certainly very believable in its descriptions and i read and actually unfortunately i don't have the reference for where where i read this but in the and i imagine this might be something you come to in a minute but this book was written in multiple drafts and i think it's in a letter to a friend she writes how one of the things that really slows down the writing is that she's constantly fact checking and making sure that every element of the kind of natural environment and the the birds that she's writing about would really be there at the time that she's writing about and i think that's that's really really apparent and it certainly feels like the motives for that are you no know, like a a real desire to kind of present this this landscape and this way of life in the kind of fullness of of what it would really be to actually find yourself there that lyrical side which does appear from time to time 
there there is uh, an appreciation of of the beauty there but that's never allowed to prevail i don't think the materiality of of existence there is is something that, that returns again and again and is very much at the forefront she's educated in a convent school in Linz and her studies are interrupted for for a period by sickness I think she has inflammation of the lungs or something and she would actually suffer with ill health quite regularly throughout her adult life too but she does return to complete her secondary education there and graduates in 1939 after which she joins the Reichsarbeitsdienst the RAD or the Reich Labour Service. Have you come across that, Rob? Do you know what that is? No, no. So it's, it's an organisation in Nazi Germany designed to mitigate the effects of unemployment and to instil the workforce with national socia- socialist ideology. And she completes service there in a, in a, the city of Elbing on the Polish border, which is it's a city is now part of Poland. And she seems to have really enjoyed the life there she wrote a lot of detailed letters back about the hard work in which she was engaged and and it seems to have been quite a kind of joyous experience for her i'm pretty sure that in later life she comes to be very critical of national socialism and it seems as though this this period was enjoyable for her not for specifically political reasons or anything like that but as it gave her the opportunity to feel released from the 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 strictures of her family environment and it gave her a kind of work ethic of sorts it is quite striking isn't it that it would be i suppose just a matter of course for for many young people graduating at that time to perform this kind of service Yeah, yeah 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 and i think it is um Again, for me, one of these strange kind of tensions that exist within the book, certainly one of them seems to be this need to have a role or or a duty and then the kind of desire to rebel or discard the socially prescribed duty or socially prescribed position and, and what role that kind of brings. But still, even after discarding that, the need to have some kind of work. Yeah, I guess that kind of mentality is is something that probably is instilled at that time and certainly has, I get to know, there's like a German tradition thinking of kind of Max Weber, kind of Protestant work ethic, something that's, um, I mean, it's it's absolutely like a, a huge thing here in the UK, but I think very much a part of kind of like German uh kind of mindset as well and and especially so at that time this kind of work ethic really really struck me that you know is something that she's simultaneously trying to get away from or certainly trying to get away from like societally prescriptive ways of work and this kind of shift away to more masculine forms of work or i would maybe say a kind of like sexless existence but yeah there's this passage that i thought was really interesting where she's coming down from the high meadows having spent what seems to be quite a almost leisurely summer and she's returning back into the valley for the winter and she says this familiar ordinariness was what i needed to live if i wanted to stay a human being in the pasture something of the cold and breadth of the sky had seeped into me and it imperceptibly distanced me from life but that was already in the past While I made my descent into the valley, the butter churn wasn't the only thing that weighed painfully against my shoulders. All the worries I had dismissed revived. I was no longer freed from the earth, but toiling and overburdened, as befits a human being. And it seemed a good thing to me, 
and I gladly assumed the heavy load. And this, I mean, it's like so steeped in, for me, what is like a like a very kind of like almost like Christian martyrdom that you know, you glad gladly assume the heavy load really sums up this like particular tension that that she seems to have here. Not to complicate things, but uh, mm. I think that she is Catholic. I mean, I know, I know. It, it doesn't matter it's not about her, uh, her, her yeah, religious okay, uh, yes. feelings or anything of course it's not it's not about that right it's not about individual yeah cases and of course i guess even though yeah the the Weber thing is very much about kind of like a protestant idea that catholicism in in germany is like a huge a huge thing and still very much bound up with the kind of idea of a certain martyrdom although it's um slightly different certainly not the kind of ascetic existence that she lives in the in the forest but but definitely still this this kind of like need to labor for something greater than yourself or or something imposed from without perhaps to kind of shape your life or give your life some kind of meaning that comes from well perhaps i'm wrong actually in saying it comes from without certainly the need for for something whose weight is able to yeah shape or or like mold existence suffering i suppose yeah yeah, 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 definitely. In 1940, she enrolls at the University of Vienna and studies philosophy. And I think I'm right in saying that she never completes those studies. She has a number of breaks and eventually comes back to Graz to study rather than in Vienna. But, but I think her studies are, are, are broken off and in, entirely during the war. She marries Manfred Haushofer in 1941 and he spends the war years completing his medical studies and also becomes severely ill and is convalescent for a long time. Just before the end of the war they're forced to flee as a couple from Graz because of the approach of Soviet troops and interestingly they flee by bicycle which I thought was quite quite a, a strange image to have. Yeah, uh, and they they make their way to Frauenstein, where Alsafer grew up, and eventually settle in Steyr, where she remains until until her death. And it's it's after the war that she begins to publish fiction, and a number of novels appear and collections of short stories with quite favourable but fairly small-scale responses, I think. Unlike more famous writers of the period, such as Ingeborg Bachmann, she didn't live a particularly, well, what might be perceived as a sort of writerly or artistic lifestyle. She wasn't particularly bohemian, but stayed at home looking after her children and her husband and apparently intensely disliked public appearances, readings and, and so on. She also suffers with depression and quite a number of other ailments. She has lung disease and high blood pressure, chronic fever and anemia. In 1958, she has a sort of dizzy spell in the city and, and falls from the open door of a, of a tram, damaging her back quite, quite severely. It doesn't seem like she was a particularly fulfilled person. But clearly, clearly her, her writing was very important to her. I mean, there's a letter, I think it might be the first reference to the wall in any of her correspondence. She writes to, to a friend called Hans Polak, and she says, The novel is complete in my head. Please cross your fingers for me that this time nothing shall stand in the way. It is very difficult to write because only one character appears and there isn't a single line of dialogue. If I don't manage... I shall at last live like an ordinary person. 
I shall read ghost stories and utopian novels and grow old with dignity. Of course, there's um, there's a bit of humour in this pronouncement, but it does seem like writing was quite an arduous thing for Haushofer. I get that impression from quite a number of letters and so on, that it wasn't something that just flowed out of her, but was was a great struggle for her. I don't know if you had the same impression, Rob, or if you saw that anywhere. Not from the book, but yes, yeah, certainly from the, the bits of correspondences that I also read. Yeah, it seems like she makes reference to this quite a lot. It's another letter here when she talks about how writing strains her a great deal and she suffers from head headaches and that she has to keep the household running alongside that, that project. She, she says all that it... All that is very difficult for me because I can only concentrate on one thing and forcing me to be versatile makes me extremely nervous. I have the feeling as if I were writing into the air. It was just quite an interesting phrase, I think, when we consider the the potential lack of any reader for the document that the protagonist is writing. Well, she does eventually receive an audience, you know. Um, this book, The Wall, will eventually become her most celebrated and popular novel um, and it's awarded the Schnitzler Prize. It's not clear to me how much, quite how celebrated the, the novel was during her lifetime. I mean she, she she dies seven years later at quite a young age of 49. She dies of bone cancer after a, an operation in, in Vienna. In some of the sort of secondary material I, w- I was reading, I would hear her referred to as a forgotten writer, you know, um, in material written in the 1990s and uh, even as late as 2000, she's referred to like that. So even though she received this, this prize, it, her popularity doesn't seem to have been very long-lived. Of course, now that's that's quite different. You know, there's even a film made of of this book which neither of us have have seen yet i think we're both saving that until after after we finish discussing it right but it does seem like now she is receiving the the kind of attention both critical and popular attention and the the translation has been very well received as well I also resolutely decided to wind the clocks daily and cross off each day in the diary At the time, it struck me as very important. I was practically clinging to the meagre remnants of human routine left to me. Incidentally, I've never abandoned certain habits. I wash myself daily, brush my teeth, do my laundry and keep the house clean. I don't know why I do that. It's as if I'm driven by an inner compulsion. Maybe I'm afraid that if I could do otherwise, I would gradually cease to be a human being and would soon be creeping about, dirty and stinking, emitting incomprehensible noises. Not that I'm afraid of becoming an animal. That wouldn't be too bad. But a human being can never become just an animal. He plunges beyond into the abyss. I don't want this to happen to me. Recently, that's what has made me most afraid, and it is out of that fear I am writing my report. Once I've reached the end, I shall hide it well and forget about it. I don't want the strange thing that I might turn into to find it one day. I shall do all I can to avoid that transformation, but I'm not fool enough to believe with any confidence that what has happened to so many people before me could not happen to me. There's, you know, obviously a, 
a certain place to start is the wall. And I must admit, coming to the book, I initially assumed there was going to be some reference, because I knew it was in German, something about the Berlin Wall. And actually, I don't, I don't think there's anything, for me anyway, no matter how much I kind of turn the book round and try and make it fit into the shape of some kind of political allegory or, or something. I mean, there's bits that I think touch on things obliquely, but for me, and I don't know, uh, maybe you disagree, I, I just didn't, I don't think it's there. I think there's, there's stuff about society more broadly and the, the kind of like nature of walls, but something specifically about Cold War kind of like life on different sides, you know, these kind of like ideologies on different sides of the wall, of the Berlin Wall, that is. I didn't, I didn't quite think it was there. Obviously, the sort of shadows of the, the Cold War are present. You know, she mm. gives us the explanation of, the the only explanation she really offers for, for the war in very specific terms has to do with conflict. It's a, it's a technological military explanation that, that she gives. She thinks of it as some kind of protective measure or even a weapon in nuclear conflict or something like that, doesn't she? But no, uh, in terms of the Berlin Wall, that's not at all what I got from this book. It does really invite allegorical interpretation, but that's not something Mm. I turn to at all. No, definitely. And I mean, certainly it's probably easier to say what the wall isn't than what it is. At a purely practical kind of narrative level, it's almost, you know, it's introduced very early on. And it's the thing that kind of like shapes what goes on and remains in the background. But it's it's almost not addressed, I would say. Like, uh, you know, she comes across it and she finds it and revisits it a couple of times, perhaps, no more. And that's in, it's accepted as, as fact. And there's no real attempt to get under it or get over it things are witnessed beyond it occasionally that you know the nature is slowly starting to overtake the the small this kind of settlements she can see and the bodies she can see in the background of people or birds or things that have died on the other side of the wall but there is this yeah kind of stoic and very practical acceptance of of this wall that all of a sudden exists that that splits her off and that really emphasizes for me anyway the allegorical quality that this isn't a book about the kind of like the real the why or the the political practicalities of of what this wall might be or why it might exist it's um, it's far more a kind of narrative device which then as you say like lends itself to so many different interpretations and and kind of sits as this kind of dividing line of which there's so many in the book that there's a split along gender lines, but there's also a split along the the youth and old age, and there's a split between human and animal and nature and the the city or the kind of built environment and and so many more and it's never a wall that's put up for us or for the narrator to fall on one side or the other that there's uh you know whether whether something is good or bad or positive or negative is really never settled on and it's this constant tension that runs between it and so yeah the fact that there is this physical (laughs) invisible wall really just mirrors these these kind of splits that run throughout the book yeah i was struck by what you said about the fact that she doesn't she doesn't address it really she doesn't dwell on on the wall itself particularly but just very quickly comes to consider it simply part of her new circumstances and she'll just have to kind of live with it there are moments when she considers how far down it goes if it goes if it goes right down into the earth 
or if it can be dug under or climbed over but those moments are really few and far between and she just seems to immediately adapt to a, a new kind of mindset i think it's interesting that the the description of the wall when we first encounter it is actually quite violent you know it's marked by blood right uh Mm. the dog lynx ironically named dog i don't know whether we actually see this described but he he runs into the wall or we're, we're given to understand that he has run into the wall and perhaps bitten his tongue or chipped a tooth and that red saliva is dripping from his mouth so the dog is bleeding and and then there's this little bird and a nut hatch with its head caved in and its breast flecked mm. with blood she beats against the wall and hurts her fists everything seems to be telling her that this is a violent rupturing of her existence all those injuries and deaths and that that blood seem to be kind of compelling her to react emotionally and yet she doesn't really which i think is quite strange you know i think in a matter of paragraphs she is thinking about practicalities she begins measuring her island in inverted commas you know her recourse is to reason immediately and it was for me something that really shaped the the kind of reading of the rest of the book and um it was only when making notes and thinking a bit more about it that i sort of started to think that maybe this had to do with yeah i guess the very nature of walls in themselves like they you know can obviously be to keep something out or to keep something in, it can be to pre- protect from the outside or to, to kind of like cage within. And that within this context, we're very much set up as, you know, you described exactly like this, the kind of violent discovery of this wall that she's caged in somehow. And that maybe actually there's something else going on here or there's a, with everything in this book, there's a kind of, you know, things aren't quite as simple and there's a, there's a tension here between actually... Is is she really caged in or is she now protected in some way from the outside world? I find it really interesting that it's seemingly the animals that are, or she at least describes the animals are perhaps worst affected, you know, that as you say, Lynx is injured by the wall and the, the bird is killed. And the only point she ever describes attempting to get to the other side of the wall or, or making some rupture through to the other side is... When she worries about the deer and how they have no natural predators and that eventually, however much land is kind of circumscribed by this wall, that they might not have enough food anymore. And so she says, you know, if I ever leave this place, I'll attempt to dig a hole under the wall so at least the deer can escape. But for her, maybe the wall, as hard as it is to deal with and as hard as it makes her life, actually perhaps can be seen as something positive as well that it allows a a certain freedom from the outside world and I think really that's probably very very much gendered that perhaps in a kind of like a Robinson Crusoe-esque tale the uh, the desire to stay alive is very much born by desire to kind of like return either to like recreate the world around you as you've known it previously or or the desire to survive long enough to be able to return and this I think again like um comes to terms very very quickly with the idea that she may never return and there may absolutely be no one else or if not comes to terms you know it acknowledges it very quickly and perhaps that has something to do with a desire or there's part of her that realizes that she doesn't want to return have you read robinson crusoe i no i actually haven't i don't like to speak of books like this but you know, i sort of endured robinson crusoe mm. um rather than <laughs> 
rather than read it I would say (laughs) and actually Robinson Crusoe is a book that only kind of came alive to me when I sat in a a lecture about it I Mm. I found the actual experience of of reading it really quite quite dull actually um, sadly but as this book is so often compared to to Robinson Crusoe it kind of made me want to go back and and read it again and I, I found myself thinking about it quite a lot it is in a sense a, a robinson aid mm. you know it's it's a kind of version of, of that story and so i was thinking very specifically about this this moment when she encounters the wall and her emotional reaction to it and my memory of robinson crusoe sort of told me that gosh i'm sure he was much more emotional than than this than the the protagonist of the wall i'm seem to remember him being very very distraught about the circumstances and melancholy and Mm. so on so i actually went back to it i looked at the at that moment and this i'll I'll read i'll read you this bit the moment of the the shipwreck i've edited one like one sentence out of it just to make it quicker but this is pretty much how it goes so he says i walked about on the shore lifting up my hands and my whole being as i may say wrapped up in the contemplation of my deliverance making a thousand gestures and motions which i cannot describe reflecting upon all my comrades that were drowned and that there should not be one soul saved but myself for as then i never saw them afterwards or any sign of them except three of their hats one cap and two shoes that were not fellow so that's the emotional part and then Mm. after i had solaced my mind with the comfortable part of my condition i began to look around me to see what kind of place i was in and what was next to be done and that is that's a matter of two two paragraphs that are spent considering that it's actually very similar that turn that Mm. turn to reason and practicality it was certainly something that that struck me in in this book immediately and i do i sort of wonder with robinson crusoe how much his immediate turn to practicality is a nature of when it was written that perhaps the that kind of emotional turmoil wouldn't have found its way into the the writing in quite the same way that we might Mm. expect uh, something written in the 1960s yeah but even yeah i suppose even in robinson crusoe you know as short as it is laments his uh, his lost comrades and this is something that just never happens you know we we return briefly to our narrators two friends who've gone off to the city never to return when the wall goes up but really i don't think she even expresses a wish that they were here no no she even says that her uh, it might have been better if she had been with them and and perished mm. on the other side yeah yeah which is as close as it gets to to expressing that in some ways it is a kind of very human reaction mm. or a reaction to sort of space and physical circumstances that immediately impresses itself upon uh, one's psychology a kind of resignation there i don't know that there was this i read this article by hugo caviola called behind the, the transparent wall in which he considers the wall as a kind of ontological disruption that is you know one that immediately eliminates the reality outside of itself he says the wall falls into two ontologically distinct spheres the enclosure and the world outside to fully understand the hybrid nature of the wall it has to be perceived as the absolute cataclysm which shatters and erases the narrator's previous life the cataclysm alluded to by the narrator as a man-made catastrophe von riesigen ausmaß that's a catastrophe uh, of enormous scale or enormous scope is perceived as the result of man's compulsion to understand the world 
So I suppose the result of scientific or technological experimentation. And he goes on, The emergence of the wall stuns the narrator's mind to the point that her interest in understanding the nature of the barrier is strangely erased. Once there, the wall is the all-determining condition of both her mind and her life. And I thought that was quite an interesting reading of it, this idea that the wall functions as a kind of ontological prison as it were that the, the new reality mm. is immediately accepted and confronted directly precisely because it has erased other possibilities Th- that same writer will go on to say that the wall becomes the new frontier of her mind Th- and that maybe that is what i meant when i said that it's quite a human reaction that you suddenly can't think past this mm. this circumstance the wall has eliminated her concept of self in relation to others and her social roles no longer exist there i don't know what you think about that i mean I, in some ways it's not it's not entirely convincing to me but i i would absolutely agree with that but with the with the slight modification that i think that yeah that's absolutely true and there's um there's certainly yeah like i think a very human reaction there and i think that's uh, maybe when i said earlier that Perhaps this is very much like actually how we might genuinely be in this situation. I think that the desire to stay alive and, and to try and create some kind of a, a life for yourself, no matter how much it is kind of like a hardship, is incredibly strong. But I think the, the kind of modification I'd want to make is that actually there's something that makes this easier for her in that it allows her far more easily than it would be had the wall not been there to discard the pressures social pressures the social necessity to conform to certain ways of ways of being and it allows her to move beyond those and to kind of change her way of living to something that perhaps is something she feels more comfortable with and you know the way she writes about her life it it gives her a sense of purpose and something that at like a like a bodily level she can engage with she talks about her physical body changing and how that's kind of like a very natural process and that maybe the counterpoint to that is that i think her age is really important here that she talks so much about childbirth and bringing up children and that actually perhaps for a woman of her age i read it in secondary literature as a woman in her 40s but she certainly i mean she talks about her children as adults so we can we can guess that it's roughly that kind of age and for a a woman of that kind of age having been through childbirth and bringing up children and now they're adults that at that time there's a a question of what's your role society you know that's something hugely problematic and and something that is addressed here so yeah i think i i would definitely agree with this kind of like ontological shift but at the same time i think it's one that isn't quite as harrowing as it could be because it opens up these opportunities to move beyond certain barriers that were previously there i find it compelling psychologically to a degree i mean i like the idea i like the reading of it that the wall is not just a physical object but a a psychological one primarily but i don't agree that it becomes entirely the, the new frontier of her mind you know i think whether she tells us explicitly or not she does seem to be conscious of her former life and her former social roles and the main example for that for me is the fact that she immediately builds a family structure around her Uh, she immediately builds a home and perhaps not entirely intentionally she restricts her own freedom 
by having creatures that become dependent upon her she perhaps goes on quite quickly to build her own kind of structure of physical constriction she becomes actually tied to these animals because she can't leave Bella the cow for instance for very long without milking her without her suffering and so on that perhaps that that mirrors the family structure that she had on the outside world I think what's really at the heart of this, for me anyway, is is this constant tension. That Yeah, there is definitely an element of the wall that allows for a kind of discarding of previous roles, but it's really not as simple as that, because absolutely, as you say, there's uh, immediately going back to picking up this role or some kind of facsimile of it. I think, you know, really, really explicitly, there's um, a section where she talks about finishing reaping the, the hay in the the field in the summer and it's you know this huge huge thing and she says um, a colossal task was completed a task that had lain before me for months like an enormous mountain now i was tired and happy i couldn't remember having felt such satisfaction since my children were little and then goes into this really like really heartbreaking description of of bringing up her children and how that gave her a sense of purpose and and then yeah she says you know i was a good mother to little children once they grew bigger and went to school I failed them I don't know how it happened but the bigger the children grew the more insecure I felt with them I still looked after them as well as I could but only very rarely was I happy around them and it's 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 something incredibly sad about losing that that sense of purpose as these children grow Mm. older and older Mm. and I think you know this is something universal I would say that really need this kind of sense of purpose The nights in the pasture were always too short. I didn't dream. The cool night air brushed over my face. Everything seemed light and free, and the nights were never entirely dark. As it stayed light for a long time, I went to bed later than I did in the valley. Every fine evening, I sat on the bench in front of the house, wrapped in my loading coat, and watched the red glow of evening spread across the western sky. Later I saw the moon rising and the stars flashing. Lynx lay beside me on the bench. Tiger, a little grey shadow, flitted from tussock to tussock in pursuit of moths. And when he was tired, he rolled up on my lap under my cape and started purring violently. I didn't think, I didn't reminisce, and I wasn't afraid. I just sat quite still, leaning against the wooden wall, tired and awake at the same time, and looked at the sky. I got to know all the stars, although I didn't know their names, they soon grew familiar. The only ones I knew were the Plough and Venus. If I narrowed my eyes to slits, I could see the infinite abysses opening up between the constellations, huge black hollows behind dense star clusters. Sometimes I used the binoculars, but I preferred to look at the sky with my naked eye. That way I could see it all at once, while the view through the binoculars was rather confusing. The night, which had always frightened me, and which I had often defied with blazing lights, lost all its terror in the alm. I had never really known it before, locked in stone houses behind blinds and curtains. The night wasn't dark at all. It was beautiful and I started to love it. Even when it rained and the layer of clouds covered the sky, I knew that the stars were there, red, green, yellow and blue. They were always there, even during the day when I couldn't see them.
And I think for when the book's written, it's amazingly prescient to, you know, be written at this point. Because there's so much for me that links with kind of like hippie movement and um, dropping out of society and back to nature. And there's large parts of this which really are in step with that at this, you know, very early stage. But then it is also this implicit critique of it within it as well, that it's really it's really not as simple, that she she absolutely needs it. And the passage earlier talking about the kind of real need for hardship and that it's, you know, a burden that she takes on happily, that there's this huge tension between, you know, it's, it's really not as simple as just kind of discarding all your previous worries and taking on this new life, so... And the wall is kind of like physical and as absolute as it is within the within the book as a physical object, as an allegorical kind of device. It's it's really never very clear which side of the wall we are, if that makes sense, or that or which side we would want to be. And perhaps this is a, a criticism of the idea of that level of um, kind of hard barrier between things. I mean, we should say it's although we're being perhaps slightly speculative about the meaning of this book i think that's one of the the real pleasures of reading this isn't it the the sort of multitude of interpretations that it that it offers as there's not so much sort of plot to cling on to i found myself reading it primarily in in sort of thematic or allegorical or metaphorical terms um it really pushes the reader towards that i think I was really interested in how you thought about the the depiction of nature here as representative of counterculture or or something like that. I'd be really interested to to hear more about that because I thought about nature in this book in, in a very different way, in more traditional or traditionally broadly Germanic cultural terms. Um, mm. I think it's interesting to, to think about it as maybe a cultural or literary artistic allegory of sorts in so much germanic culture the landscape and natural beauty is is central it's the focus of endless paintings novels and philosophical essays and symphonies and it's just it's everywhere Mm. and i've i've found myself thinking of the very sort of archetypical image of of that ideal um it's sort of quintessence as the Caspar David Friedrich painting the you know the wonder above the sea of fog you know that painting right Rob yeah. yes, yes 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 you know and the the individual stands on this elevated precipice staring out into this wild vista and and all the lines and contours of those mountain mountains meet at this focal point of his heart there's both the sublime evident in it and and in its its opposite maybe the the conquering of nature and that maybe we see in that image a, a balance of the two and that we could see this broad notion as a kind of idealism uh, in contrast to the materialism of this of this novel and i thought it quite maybe amusing or or i mean i found it quite com- quite compelling to think about what Haushofer has created in the wall as a kind of as making a prison out of this Germanic this broadly Germanic ideal that that uh, mm. it's a picture of that reverence for landscape and nature in, in grotesque form and we can imagine what it might be like to be trapped within that painting and and have to <laughs> deal with it in real terms you know I, I, we could think about the narrator being trapped inside a German romantic text <laughs> and that, 
that in fact the land premise for a for a horror story yeah yeah (laughs) (laughs) that we could think about the landscape she encounters there as a you know it's a very brutal one it's one that fights back and Mm -hmm. doesn't really allow itself to be simply admired or if it does then not for very long you know this nagging of work to be done quickly comes rising into the narrator's mind you know there's there are deer to be hunted the, the barn has to be swept and the grain has to be threshed and so on i mean i don't know how seriously i can accept that as a as a reading of the novel but it, it does stand in opposition to the sort of traditional depictions of nature in in broadly german-speaking cultures i mean does that sound insane to you no no i think that's a really really good point i mean it for me really reminds me of of the kind of natural sublime and yeah this the the kind of comprehension of nature i guess in like specifically kantian sublime that actually what what happens in that movement is that eventually the mind is is first repelled by the just the enormity of what it sees but then overcomes it and almost subdues it in its realization of its own ability to actually comprehend this and so it becomes very much the elevation of the human capacity to comprehend and to think over nature. Uh, and so it's very much, you know, it's absolutely tied in with nature, but equally it's very human focused. And I think, yeah, Kant in that text talks about how the experience of the natural sublime can never be had by, uh, describes the Savoyard peasant, uh, whose life is completely, um, you know, he's talking about mountains and is uh, completely tied in with the mountain. And I think this is actually definitely, definitely is, is something that's happening here, that it, it kind of works against that idea of nature and is far more with the, the Savoyard peasant that actually there's um, an experience of the natural world which certainly isn't over overly romanticised but is something to be to be lived within. Historically, I'm sure the idea of nature as something that's tied in with the kind of like elevation of human thought but also pleasure, I suppose, is something that definitely isn't the case here Uh, and so historically works that way but then also I found it really interesting as a kind of critique almost before the fact of the very romantic idea of nature which happens from this point on in the the kind of like hippie movement and I suppose it's yeah I guess it's really important to be aware of the fact that although perhaps for us culturally it's still very present this idea of like a return to nature is something that crops up every other generation that you know this kind of like this sudden societal worry that we might have got too far away from from nature and that there needs to be this return so for us it's kind of like 60s is the one that's the most present and perhaps we'll live through another one in our lifetime but yeah i think there's countless examples but it seems like something she's really aware of not falling into that romantic idealization of nature. Although there is this very realistic idea of um, making a life for yourself and her, her life is completely determined by the seasons and very much about as close <laughs> as close to nature as it's possible to be and and talks about herself almost becoming an animal. But at the very same time, there's this really lovely line where she, she writes... I'm the only disturbance in the forest and I still suffer from that. And so there seems to be this huge awareness at the same time that no matter how much she might feel herself almost becoming an animal or is incredibly in tune with the seasons and sort of begins to notice the patterns and the way of actually living there, that she's still perhaps not meant to be there and that she's this 
disturbance. For me, reading it, this book, it seems incredibly modern. I found it almost quite hard to believe that it was written in 1960. And so I think for that reason, I kind of associate it with perhaps historical events that come after it. And so this, you know, for someone living in um, quite a small town in Austria, actually, I think the uh, the kind of counterculture movement probably isn't particularly present. No, maybe not. Um, <laughs> and so actually, although I think this is, you know, it's still really valid to think about it in that context. I think the context of this like Germanic relationship with nature is is really, really valid. The womanliness of my 40s had fallen from me, along with my curls, my little double chin and my rounded hips. At the same time, I lost the awareness of being a woman. My body, more skillful than myself, had adapted itself and limited the burdens of my femininity to a minimum. I could simply forget I was a woman. Sometimes I was a child in search of strawberries or a young man sewing wood or when sitting on the bench holding Pearl on my scrawny lap watching the setting sun, I was a very old sexless creature. Today, the peculiar charm that emanated from me back then has left me entirely. I am still scrawny but muscular, and my face is crisscrossed with tiny wrinkles. I'm not ugly, but neither am I attractive, more like a tree than a person, a tough brown branch that needs its whole strength to survive. If I think today of the woman I once was, the woman with the little double chin who tried very hard to look younger than her age, I feel little sympathy for her. But I shouldn't like to judge her too harshly. After all, she never had the chance of consciously shaping her life. When she was young, she unwittingly assumed a heavy burden by starting a family, and from then on she was always hemmed in by an intimidating amount of duties and worries. Only a giantess would have been able to free herself, and in no respect was she a giantess, never anything other than a tormented, overtaxed woman of medium intelligence, in a world on top of everything else that was hostile to women, and which women found strange and unsettling. She knew a great deal about many things, and nothing at all about many others. All in all, her mind was governed by a terrible disorder, a reflection of the society in which she lived, which was just as ignorant and put upon as herself. But I should like to grant her one thing. She always had a dim sense of discomfort and knew that all this was far from enough. Yeah, so I, w- I wonder what you thought about this. You know, the, the traditional reading of the novel seems to be one of feminine empowerment mm. and I'd sort of wondered how convinced you are by this reading. I found an article that addressed that very directly by Dagmar Lorenz called Marlene Haushofer and a Feministin aus Österreich and she writes of how the only m- male character or character in inverted commas is Lynx the dog in fact there's Bull as well isn't there but that the dog has to all intents and purposes moved into the role of companion and almost of of a husband and she says that in this loneliness as a matriarch of the creatures remaining to her the heroine is able to freely is able to freely unfold her power dexterity and independence which was stunted in the civilized world and to live up to her own ideas and she quotes a passage from the novel 
when the protagonist is thinking about the the huntsman whose whose hut she visits to sort of scavenge some some of the supplies there she says i used to think about him occasionally in the early days hugo could easily have brought him along when he first arrived then the last few years would probably have been easier for me now all the same i'm no longer quite sure who knows what imprisonment would have done to that unassuming man in any case he was physically stronger than i am and i would have been dependent on him Perhaps he would now be sitting around lazily in the hut, sending me off to do the work. The possibility of delegating work must be a great temptation for any man. And why should a man, without the fear of criticism, go on working at all? No, it's better that I am alone. I mean, that passage undeniably does seem to point to a reading of empowerment quite straightforwardly, I think. But I wondered, I wondered what you thought about that this particular way in which the the novel has been read yeah i mean i think it's it's certainly like a a, you know like a really very very powerful strain that runs runs through the novel and we could pick out loads of passages where really explicitly this comes to the fore but i also feel it does it a bit of a disservice to think about it in such simplest well not not that simplistic but in in such a straightforward way because i think actually what she's doing here is is way more complex and is at a certain level yeah absolutely that's what's that's what's happening you know she she talks about the the world that she had inhabited previously as um, one that on top of everything else was hostile to a woman and in which women found strange and unsettling and then goes on to say you know she always had a dim sense of discomfort and knew that all this was far from enough so yeah absolutely there's like a, a like a huge critique of place of women in in society but at the same time i think there's something really complex going on around motherhood which you kind of touched on already and for me that's like definitely the the, one of the most emotional parts of the book is um, when she's describing, as as already stated, the the way that her life has changed since you know as her children grew older and uh, she no longer feels that she has a need or she's no longer needed. Sorry, and you know later <laughs> goes on to describe her adult children as loveless, mm. uh, which I found quite funny. But I read in some of the secondary literature that in I don't know if it's biographical fiction or actually just straight biography but nowhere ending sky yes i think it might be very much based in her own biography but apparently in that it writes about the alienation that builds up between a young girl and her mother and so this seems to be something that kind of complicates matters slightly is that obviously that very much criticizes this idea that the mother is kind of like the only role of women because that will eventually be a relationship that changes and in this case breaks down again as we've discussed she she really strives for this this kind of need but for me one of the things that really starts to question that is that she i don't know is is definitely reacting to a situation where she finds herself alone and and can do all these things but i think like she moves into like a place that maybe is slightly out or imagines at least a place outside of those gender specifically binary ideas of of gender there's a there's a passage that i really love that i might read out in full if that's okay Okay, where where she says, My body, more skillful than myself, had adapted itself and limited the burdens of my femininity to a medium. I could simply forget I was a woman, sometimes I was a child, in search of strawberries, or a young man sawing wood, or when sitting on the bench holding pearl on my scrawny lap watching the setting sun, I was a very old, sexless creature. 
Today, the peculiar charm that emanated from me back then has left me entirely. I am still scrawny, but muscular, and my face is crisscrossed with tiny wrinkled. I am not ugly, but neither am I attractive. More like a tree than a person. A tough brown branch that needs its whole strength to survive. And there's something in there... I mean, I really love this idea, that, and she repeats it again and again throughout the book, that actually her body is, is far more adept at adapting to this situation than her mind. But also that, yeah, it seems to be moving away, certainly moving away from an idea of societally imposed idea of femininity, but moving towards something sexless. I mean, it, it's literally, it's, it's very much there. And the, the whole book talks about the, the kind of complications and the, the kind of conflicting emotions that, that come with that. So it's, I mean, it's definitely emancipatory in some ways, but it doesn't shy away from the kind of difficulties and these kind of desires for, for still having some kind of need or some kind of use. And so, yeah, I think it is, that was a very long way of saying <laughs> that. I think it's there, but um, but it's as with anything here. It's there's a there's a huge tension involved in that, and that's what makes it so amazingly interesting. I think you've hit the nail on the the head there, Rob, with with that because my impression that to see her as occupying these roles that are traditionally played by men, and that you know that would be how emancipation is achieved, is quite is quite reductive, perhaps. Uh, and and I should also add to that that suffering is the manner in which she achieves emancipation hard work and suffering mm. and it is while it's true that she she does in fact cut her hair short and her body becomes more muscular and attuned to hard work she even puts on men's clothes and she does all these things for practical purposes but i i think you're right to say that it, in some manner she has transcended the gender problem i mean Maybe that's too much to say, but that in this context, gender seems to all intents and purposes not really to exist any longer. And I suppose the questions we would have to ask would be, is she in fact freer than she was before? You know, and is the fact that she takes on these traditionally male roles, but divorced from that social context significant and i would say that she as as i mentioned earlier she's not necessarily freer physically you know um we we talked about how she's created this family structure with the care of animals and essentially recapitulated her role as as a mother to some degree but the fact that it takes place outside of the context of any kind of social relations seems to be the the important thing there for me that that's the freedom that she has achieved rather than a purely emancipatory one in in an ordinary context of gender relations but then it is it is ruptured slightly by the appearance of this man at the very end of the novel right yeah who just enters very very abruptly and destroys all the good work she has done and she's forced to commit murder um, almost without thinking yeah i mean i think obviously it is it's no mistake that this this figure is masculine but i also feel like the figure doesn't represent necessarily like a a specific person that it's far more representative of this kind of like seeping in of what happens or what existed outside of the wall perhaps and I think it again 
for me anyway, functions as this like this content counterbalance, which is which is happening. That after three hundred odd pages, that you perhaps feel that she may have found some kind of rhythm and some kind of balance, and then that's of course once again set off balance by the appearance of this man who destroys so much so quickly, but also represents this idea that there could be more people out there, and what you know, what will this bring? And she doesn't really address that very specifically she you know seems to suggest that she's just going to go on and that there may be more kittens and more calves and things will things will change and can you know she'll deal with them as they happen but yeah i mean whether this is kind of meant to be like a patriarchal force or whether it's some manifestation of evil or uh you know allegorical level is really really hard to say but definitely i think it's it's what this what this novel does constantly is kind of knocks you off balance and and shows that nothing is ever particularly stable or it gets into kind of like a pleasant rhythm and this happens again at the end and so I think certainly the feminist position that the book takes up that's definitely part of it but I don't think it's the it's the whole even even with this emergence of the of the man who kind of wreaks destruction. I find it really difficult in purely narrative terms maybe this is very harsh but it feels like the novel has to end somehow and that is the kind of a reverse deus ex machina kind of affair that rather than someone being saved it, it is someone entering to put a full stop on the narrative somehow i was very much inclined to read it in in those gender terms that it's just this this violent force which she has tried so hard to avoid for for over the course of these two years you know she talks about how it pained her every time she had to go out hunting for for deer and that she tried to shoot as few of them as as she possibly could but that this figure thought nothing of destroying life wherever he found it for for his own benefit he just wields this act and it's uh, this axe and it's a very bloody kind of murder the, the kind of violence that we haven't really seen since since the wall first appeared and so yeah. In narrative terms, the the wall's appearance is marked by blood, and then and, and there's bloodshed once again to bring it to its close. And so there's something maybe cyclical about that, and it places everything that she has achieved in in a kind of stasis. It makes it seem very hopeless to me, even though she describes feeling a degree of hope towards the end. But yeah, I was I was I must admit in, inclined to read it as representative of some mm. kind of male violent and brutal presence. Final question, Rob. How many shirts are you going to give Marlene Haushofer's The Wall? I think I think I might go. I might go for a nine. Found it incredibly thought-provoking, and in its own way, very, very strange. Like really, kind of slow-burning, but it really got under my skin. It's somehow quite a quiet book, despite the very violent ending. Yeah, like a really, really, really amazing. I mean, I, I think it's something that deserves to be known far more than it is even though obviously it's gained in popularity a lot recently but yeah really really fantastic i thought Um, what about yourself yeah actually discussing it with you and thinking about it in a lot more detail has given me a sort of renewed appreciation for it um it's really a wonderful book and i was much more conscious this time round of the beauty of its construction it's in the meditative moments that this book really shines for me i'm going to give it seven shirts i think really enjoyed it perhaps not quite as much as you but um i think it's a really special one 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please support us by leaving a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. Shared's podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.